All right. Welcome to Researching Happy, coming to you outside of the studio, if you could call that normal setup a studio. Um, I'm coming to you from Vancouver. I've been at the IPA conference for the last four days, um, which for those who don't know, that's the International Positive Psychology Association, um, which meets every two years. And so two years ago, obviously, it was online and two years before that was in Melbourne. Um, so it was slightly easy to, to get to. Um, firstly, Vancouver has been a, a beautiful, it's a beautiful city. Um, it's been really nice weather while we've been here. Um, however, today it's just that I woke up and it's just pouring with rain. So I thought it was the middle of summer, but um, I guess that's how life goes. Um, so I want to do today just a little bit of a breakdown, I guess, of, of some thoughts um, since being at the conference, um, talk about some highlights, some improvements that I can see since previous conferences have, you know, finish off with some suggestions and some reflections. Um, but I also included, I, I recorded my um, two two of the presentations that I gave. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of tack them onto the end here. And so they'll, that's audio only, but I'll have the slides that I presented and you can sort of like watch along with that if you'd like. So, you know, on the way here, I obviously had like 15 hours of flight time just to think um, and watch crappy movies. And I was really thinking about my expectations for the conference. So, you know, sometimes I get this um, sort of allergic reaction to some of the things that you see in conferences. You see sometimes a little bit of nepotism, a bit of elitism, and uh, that doesn't sit too well with me. You see some like super enthusiastic people and lots of Americans jumping around and high-fiving each other and stuff. And, but, I, you know, I didn't want to come here as a hater, I guess, which might be my more natural, my natural uh, tendency sometimes. Um, but I was thinking about, you know, what do I, what do I really want? What am I looking for the most out of the conference? And um, I think, I think that was the direction of the field. I think sometimes it's really hard to tell where the field's going unless you're sort of in amongst it and seeing um, some of the leaders in the field, how they're talking and what they're talking about. And so um, you know, there are lots of critics of, of pos psych and, and it's things that have happened in the past, but, uh, I, you know, I really want to be part of something that's credible and something that's making a difference. Um, and I do sometimes wonder whether the field is a little bit insular and inside it's inside its little bubble. Um, so luckily for me, I think I got exactly what I was looking for. I think the field is moving in a really strong direction. I thought that lots of the emerging leaders of the field were really calling out this issue of being sort of insular and stuck in its cocoon. And, um, you know, we'll go into that now. So in terms of highlights, um, you know, like not talking about like that, that it was fun and all those sorts of things. I think that's all nice. Um, but I was really impressed by the idea that maybe for the first time that I've seen positive psychology really seems to know its limitations greater than anyone else. Um, and more importantly than that, there are people around the world who are actually trying to fix those issues. So um, there was a really great presentation by Tayab Rashid and Tim Lomas and Aaron Jardin um, that was extremely well attended. I think the title was something like Make the Field Better or something like that. Um, and what was really what was really great is that they were basically just calling out, here are the issues um, but here are the solutions and, 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 and we can point out examples of people who are actually going forward and fixing these things. Um, I think Tim Loma said something 
really nice, which was that, you know, a lot of the criticism that he hears about positive psychology, it's also, it's often people coming from a very uncharitable position, um, but more importantly, from an outdated position, they might be talking about a paper from five or 10 years ago, um, where actually, you know, that's not what the field sort of endorses anymore, or, or there's, or there's at least someone in the field who's actually trying to address whatever that limitation was. So that's, that's nice to hear from someone, um, you know, who's really, really in, in, in a emerging leadership position almost. I don't know if he would see himself like that, but at least I do, um, in a leadership position going forward for the future of PodPsych. Um, Tayab said something that was really interesting about the idea of the word positive. Um, I, we've, we've spoken about this before with other people in, in, in the podcast and he came from this really interesting idea that he almost didn't want to call it positive, you know, and bear in mind, this is like 15 years ago. He didn't really, he, he, he's, um, done a lot of work sort of integrating wellbeing and clinical therapy and, and, um, his, idea was to call it, I guess, positive psychotherapy. And he had this really funny story of just saying like, you know, years later, he never probably really wanted to call it positive to begin with, but he's had people saying to him this whole time, like, you know, all the downsides of the word positive, because I wish I'd never called it positive. It would have been less sexy, which is means it, ne it never would have been adopted, um, which is part of the balancing act. Um, but he said, um, not only over this time as he had people criticizing him for the word positive, he's criticized people for the word psychotherapy as well. So he really hasn't been able to win over this time. And he was kind of talking about what he might've called it, but you know, as soon as you start getting technical, the adoption rate of this stuff often starts to fall away. So that was really interesting. Um, another highlight was how accessible, you know, this is as a group of people. And so um, listening to people like uh, Micah Bartles, you know, she's the president. She's this top genetics professor. We've had her on the podcast before. She's just hanging around, you know, she's, she's, she's super busy. Obviously she's chairing things and presenting things and whatever, but it's quite unusual. And I think she called it out herself around just the connections at the conference. It's quite unusual that you find a group of people who are just so accessible and ready to listen and talk and learn. Um, so I think that's actually pretty cool. The field is kind of like, it's big, but it's still small enough that you can actually reach the people that you might want to reach um, and, and you can work together. Um, connection was the theme of the conference. Just following on from that, I guess, it was nice to see people reconnecting after four years and you do forget how much of this type of work is relationship-based um, because obviously we skipped the conference two years ago. Um, it was really nice to see like old friends basically coming together. And, and I, I think I got the sense a lot from across the conference that people sort of saying like, not only do we want to do good work, we want to work with good people. Um, and I think it's really easy to forget that, or, or at least it's easy for me to forget that in a way that these are a bunch of friends working on a mission together in a way. Um, that's kind of how it, how it kind of works out. And so it was really nice. And, and in a way, nice to see at the end of the conference, you know, how, basically how sad people were to separate. Um, not that that's not that I was getting pleasure out of that, but the idea like there are really, really strong bonds from people from around the world, from all these different fields, um, really, really coming together to work on this, on this cause. Um, a real highlight for me was the last presentation of the conference, which was professor Elizabeth Dunn um, from I think the university of British Columbia. Um, or maybe it's BCU. Um, 
And she spoke about the replication crisis of, of psychology, but a, particularly, I guess, applied it to positive psychology. And I think she came from this extremely humble position. Um, again, I guess on the theme of not being just a hater, but actually being someone that's productive. She really came from this field, from this angle, sort of saying like, these issues with replication in psychology um she, and she put up her hand and said you know i'm i i've been part of it as well you know and it's often unintentional um and it's often for probably practical reasons like if you're just trying to get this pilot up off the ground um you don't have the opportunity or you don't have the funding to come up with these large sample sizes but i think she did a really good job of balancing like much needed improvement in the field um, and calls for improvement and higher standards with criticism. So not just being, um, I think, overly critical or unfairly critical. I think she struck this really nice balance, which is something that I'll uh, I'll continue to aspire to. And as a result, you know, her work is just is just really impressive. I think, and um, I mean, obviously, that's not just what she does. She's got all these all this extra stuff that she does as well, but. Um, which, which I definitely recommend you looking up. She's got TED Talks and these amazing projects with the TED Talks team. And, and um, yeah, I just think that um, it maybe it, may it's the real example of, of what I'm talking about here, of what I've taken away from this conference is that, you know, there's a, there's a big problem that's been out there in the world, which is this replication crisis. Um, you know, obviously that, that um, for those who haven't heard about it, the idea that some of our stats um some of our studies haven't been sufficiently powered or basically had enough people to tell whether we're seeing real differences or some of the differences that we see in our research are just merely due to, uh, due to chance and maybe that's yeah it's, it's an example of of how this field is progressing because i think maybe in previous times or or whatever it might have been easy just to bury your head in the sand about this thing and just say you know we'll just we'll just kind of act as if this isn't the case but I think this was a really nice example of saying, actually, we know this issue and the only solution, uh, you know, the solution can only come from within, basically. So we have to lift our game and work forwards together. Um, what else in terms of highlights? Another highlight for me was how prevalent um, Corey Keyes' name was at the conference. I think um, the dual continuer was extremely well endorsed. We saw it presented in in a few presentations, um, even in some keynotes. It's a shame that he's not really around. And I guess people would say he's not often invited to these things. So it just makes it even more exciting, the fact that Corey's been invited to give a keynote at the European conference next year. So um, for anyone that can get to Austria next year, I, I met the organizers of the conference. They seem like really amazing people who are very committed to to academic excellence um i can see why they've invited keys and i really really look forward to it and hopefully i can make it there as well um but the other one who really his name came up quite a lot was paul wong who's another person who um isn't necessarily um well known i kind of think of him as like your favorite well-being researcher's favorite well-being researcher you know if you've heard that of like your favorite band's favorite band um and he'll be on the podcast in a couple of weeks. So that's really exciting. Um, highlights. What else have I got here in my notes? Yeah. Just the last one was this idea that um, it was very evident from around the conference, this idea that um, 
we need to be actually tackling real world problems. And, and if we can't be doing that and contributing to sort of like the national or international discussion around world problems, we're just going to stay in our little cocoon. And I think that people were really um, on board with that idea. And, and there are lots of examples of work happening in that idea. All right, cool. So in terms of improvements, um, I think the biggest improvement, I've really just got one to talk about from two conferences ago, you know, because I sort of spoke with Micah um, on the podcast as she's the president of IPA, what were the improvements that she was looking to bring in? I think the first one was academic rigor. Um, and I think that was pretty evident. I know I think there's still a bit of a way to go and maybe that's natural when the conference is, is a mix between practice and research. Um, and so I'm willing to sort of concede that. But I think the the biggest difference was the opening address. I think that um, the conference on the Thursday night was opened by uh, a discussion around, um, you know, the Gallup World Happiness Report, which is a panel of John Halliwell, Richard Layard, Jan Emanuel, Deneve, and Laura Aiken, uh, Aknin, uh, chaired by Micah as well, which is nice. But it was just so robust. You know, it's world-leading. It's exciting. This is the stuff that has maybe been outside of the world of post-psych, um, but even I believe it was, yeah, Richard, uh, John Halliwell said, you know, IPA and the world, the Gallup World Happiness Report, you know, these are best friends, basically. They're friends that are made for each other. And so it's good to see something that is so internationally credible, um, standing up, basically showing its its ties and its roots with um, with the post sort of movement. You know, if I compare that to the introduction address from 2019 in Melbourne, uh, I won't go into that so much because I'll, I'll be falling into that sort of hater, that hater bucket. But I think that it's a very stark contrast to have like four people who are extremely active in the field doing world-leading research compared to someone who maybe is just sort of giving his opinion on some stuff like that's, it's a totally different experience. And I think that it's really set the scene for the rest of the conference. Don't know whether Micah had a lot to do with that, but if she did, I congratulate her. I should mention, I guess, yeah, congratulations to the rest of the team that, that went to putting this conference together. I think it actually went off without a hitch. I think it was basically flawless. Um, and I think that was Aaron's, uh, Soren, uh, Andrew Soren and um, and um, James Pawowski as well. So congratulations to them for putting on something that was so, so just worked so well. Um, I don't know if I'm just rambling on at this point. In terms of suggestions, I think, I think it's really, it remains a bit to me unclear what IPA's role is, but I think that it has a lot to do. Um, particularly about facilitating the environment that I have. So, you know, I guess, I guess sometimes the unfair criticism of maybe the IPA conference is that it's not so rigorously academic, but I think you can flip that and say it's almost its strength because it's unusual to have such a integration of research and practice in one place. And I think we could basically be leaning into that a little bit more because there are lots of practitioners who are aware of the research. Maybe they want to know more about it, but they're probably the people identifying the gaps, you know, when they're trying to make a recommendation, they say, actually, I'm not able to make this recommendation because the research hasn't caught up to this problem. I think that's a really natural facilitation role that IPA can take, um, particularly if you think that practitioners are probably collecting data and they could be, um, you know, facilitating almost real world data collection settings for academics to sort of answer and close some of these gaps. So I think there's probably something that could be done there. 
Um, that's my big one for that. But um, I guess in terms of final final reflections, um, like I say, I think the big one is yeah, the big the big eye opener for me is yeah, this idea that if it is not, you know, it doesn't ever advertise itself as a research conference. Um, and that's probably something I've put on it in previous years and said, well, this isn't this doesn't look like a traditional one. But like I said, I don't think that's a weakness. I think that's its strength. Um, but we should be sort of trying to turbocharge that, I think, as a as an association. Um, it was nice in terms of reflections, just that there was a lot of um, endorsement for the work that we are doing, um, which was really pleasing. It feels like we're sort of right on the money with with what we're aiming for, particularly around improving the efficacy um, of interventions. And also the big one was clarifying the literature, you know, really getting on the same page with what do we mean by mental health and well-being. Um, probably my final reflection comes from something Lindsay Odes mentioned on his podcast um, here on researching happy, and and he was a he was a notable absence. I think he's been pretty busy, but he was another one probably up there with um, with um, Keys and with Paul Wong, and probably I'd throw Todd Cashdan into that mix as well. People who were like mentioned above and beyond the fact that they weren't there. Um, but Lindsay, you know, when I asked him, why did you change the name of the Center for Positive Psychology to the Center for Wellbeing Science? His answer was because we do much more than psychology, I guess, that we have a really multidimensional um, remit. And that was kind of in the back of my mind while the conference was happening. And I do wonder whether that you know, the the rationale that Lindsay applied to his center actually applies to the whole of psychology. And I think some of the strongest examples um, from the conference really were from people who were multidimensional. They they tie into psych, but I think their skill set actually comes from somewhere somewhere else. So, you know, Micah Bartles, genetics, Tim Lomas, philosophy, Susie Green, coaching, Tyler Vanderwill, epidemiology, John Halliwell, economics. They're, they're kind of like the who's who when it came to like most impactful presentations. Um, and so I do wonder whether the psychology part of positive psychology soon becomes not irrelevant, but I don't know. I I can see the fact that I guess each discipline probably just wants to, does want to own its own little piece of the world, but um, IPA is already sort of invaded, if I can say that, invaded by every other discipline anyway. So so why not? Particularly when it's like some of the best work that's happening. The thing that I think I didn't see very much of was uh, mentioned by Tim Lomas, I guess, which was this idea that, you know, research is all well and good, but we still need to see practice. But particularly in terms of policy, I didn't see too much. Uh, maybe I missed it, but I didn't see too much about policy and how this can actually influence differences. You know, uh, Tim sort of said something about comparing how much work goes into an ethics project for, a, you know, for a study of 10 people, whereas a minister with just a sweep of a pen can change millions of lives um, for better or worse. And so I think that might be something for the future. Um, and the last one was really just that there was a lot of um, positive endorsement for the work happening in, in Australia. I think people looked at Australia as a bit of a shining light when it comes to wellbeing work and, and, maybe that's something that we in Australia probably lose a little bit of sight on. Um, the fact that, a lot of positives have occurred and a lot of um, movement has happened, um, but because we've just kind of got our eyes on the prize of what we really want to see, we maybe miss um, some of the progress and that might be something that we need to celebrate ourselves. So that's it from me in terms of um, summary. I hope that was interesting.
at least um, in a, a small bit. What um, I'd love to hear back from people, hear from your ideas of what you got out of the conference. Um, you might have come with different expectations. I didn't really get the sense that anyone didn't have their expectations met, I have to say. So that would be cool. Um, but I think people came with very, very different ideas of what they were looking for. So um, yeah, let me know. What I'll do next is I'll I'll um, tag on my two presentations. So the first was a 10-minute um, summary of the work that we've been doing in the measurement, that sort of measurement project on getting on the same page of what do we mean by mental health and well-being. Um, halfway through, I had a bit of a heckler, which is always a bit of fun. And um, I think the audience gave a big laugh at the end when I sort of um, was able to deal with him a little bit because it was just a bit like, you know, sometimes people aren't really, they're sort of half paying attention. They've got sometimes like a really strong opinion and and actually we're actually agreeing. So I'm um, listening out for that. Hopefully the audio picked up um, what the questions were, but I think you can figure them out anyway. And the second, the second presentation was a 20 minute taster of the Be Well plan. So this was really talking about a lot of the stuff that we spoke about with Yoop, um in the, in the episode with him about why did we build wellbeing program Um what were our what were our intentions how how sort of detailing the rigor that went into it and then the outcomes that are coming out from it so thank you very much and um you know regular programming of the podcast will start again soon so really appreciate you guys and um yeah let me know what you think okay thanks everyone so nice to meet you all my name is matthew Isiello. i'm from adelaide in australia uh, part of a, a, a medical research institute called the SAMRI, which is the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute. So really, um, because we're, we're working with all these people who are sort of um, the real scientists, as they call themselves, they work in labs, they're really focused on quality of life, and when we talk about well-being, they go like, yeah, we already do that, we do quality of life. Mm-hmm. And um, we think they don't do that, they think they do, so this is kind of where we've ended up. What is the difference between these topics? well-being, quality of life, resilience, and coping, and um, an acknowledgement of my, uh, my colleagues there. So this is the first question, I guess. Does anyone have an answer? Who thinks they have an answer to that question? What's the difference between these things? Probably you might have an answer. I thought I did, or I think I do. But the question that's more important is, does that work across disciplines? I think that's where we fall over, right? Is that, you know, post-psych, we have a pretty good idea of well-being, more or less, but then you go to clinical psychology, they're talking something completely different. And like, you know, the two fields couldn't be nearer. Talk about then when you get to philosophy or anthropology or medicine. And really, here's an indication of the problem. Do people know about the Linton paper from 2016? I'm sure you do, it had a pretty snazzy title. 99 measures of well-being. The problem is those 99 measures, they found 196 dimensions that were being measured by, by um, those measures. And so in, in the, uh, the immortal words of, of Jay-Z, he came with 99 problems. Oh, really? I'm so sorry. Is that true? Oh, okay. I'll uh, do a retraction of that. Thank you. We've got a hip-hop fan. Um, this, these are the problems. I mean, there's obviously not 99, but... There's a couple there and they're pretty important. Because we don't use the same measures of well-being and, and our measures that we do use actually measure different things, we can't really compare measures or results. 
We continue to use inappropriate proxies like quality of, quality of life or mental illness. Improved measures can't be developed because we sort of lack a theoretical grounding to, to begin with. And systematic reviewing is hindered at all stages of the process. And I'm someone who had to go through 20,000 citations to find 400 RCTs. And that was mostly because everyone says they're building well-being in their interventions, but you go through and what do they measure? Depression, anxiety, SF12, whatever. It's just not what we're on about. And, you know, here's another example of the problem. You know, the WHO definition of mental health, what are they talking about? Eudaimonia, happiness, coping and resilience, social well-being, work well-being. Like, some people think that's a pretty random one to be chucked in there, but the point is even, you know, our highest bodies are really talking about lots of different things. And obviously these are each can be broken down as we heard this morning. So in terms of our methodology, what we did was an umbrella review. The problem for us is that there's really no clear way to start, so you sort of have to bear with us a little bit here. But we did a bit of an, uh, uh, we did an umbrella review of systematic reviews, so we sort of followed what Linton had done, but we broadened it to include reviews that had, systematic reviews that had searched for measures of quality of life, well-being, resilience and coping, because they're kind of all within that. We sort of talked them as umbrella terms, that they're partially overlapping, we don't really have a clear distinction, but they all sort of sit under this group of, of positive mental health or, or well-being. depends how you talk about it. What we did was we extracted data about the measures that we found, so the wording, the item length, the dimensions, the response scales. We did a, a synthesis and a thematic coding of those identified dimensions, and we mapped those conceptual relationships between those concepts and sort of the, the umbrella concept that they came from. So as you can see, we found 200 studies. So this is 200 reviews of measures. A lot of work's happening here, right? It's, I don't know what to call it, but it's a lot of work, a lot of replication probably, because from those 200, we only found 155 measures of well-being. So it's kind of like something like saturation if you're, if you're a um, qualitative researcher. So moving on to the results, what we found was, like I say, 155 measures of well-being. Or, you know, I, I kind of don't even know what to call it when we're talking about this, right? So positive mental health, we called it. I don't like that so much, but whatever. It's just how it goes. Someone, if you had a better answer, tell me. And here's kind of what we found when we looked at the actual, you know, the qualities or the properties of the measures. Firstly, we found that 25% of them were positively, item, uh, positively worded items only. 62% um, of them were mixed, so positive and negative items. And there are, you know, psychometric implications of, of those designs. 46% of them, so almost half, talked about, you know, your life in general, consider your life in general, and, and as we've heard a couple of times already, the time frame of your measure makes a big difference. The scale response was, was quite interesting, that there was um, a, really an overrepresentation in a way, 61% of items responding with a 3 to 5 point Likert scale. There was 30% on the 6 to 7 point Likert scale and 10% and with a 10 to 11 point Likert scale. And so I'm not a, you know expert psychometrician, but as I understand, there's not a lot of guidance in the de development of some of these Likert scales, but as I understand, that 6 to 7 point Likert scale is the sort of the optimal. I'm getting some head nods. Hopefully these are st statisticians that are looking at me. Um, and we're really sort of missing the mark there, basically, as a field. We're missing the mark there. The next is the number of items. So basically, you, I don't have to talk about that one too much. There's a lot of short items, which is, which is fine. Oh, there's a question. Uh, yeah, so, 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 
Uh, some had mixed. Yeah, thank you. So that's a good point. So the percentage there is, especially the quality of life measures that came through, they actually had mixed scales. You're right. So I should have, I should have pointed that out. So you definitely are one of the statisticians. I like it. Yeah. Um, but then this was probably the most interesting result, I think, from this, this part of it, is the response format. There are lots of ways that you can structure your like at scale, whether it be um, intensity, so how much did you feel this thing, agreement, how much do you agree with that thing, uh, frequency, how often do you feel it, and similarity, like very much like me, very, mu very not much like me. And this is again a place we thought was actually um, a huge gap in the literature because there is no real, as I understand, to my knowledge, there is no um, recommendation on terms of what do these really mean. I think there's a little bit when it comes to affect about the idea of, of frequency versus intensity, but it kind of stops there. And I think this result almost reflects that, that it's almost even across the board. People have basically made their choices. Um, but where I think this becomes really interesting is we created this sort of concept map. And so the location of this is sort of semi-arbitrary. So, you know, this is really a starting point for us. The idea was that from, oh, I've realised I actually missed this in my slides. From those 155 measures, we actually found 400 um, different dimensions in those measures. So, of course, that's not the case. Some people talk about positive affect. Other people talk about happiness. There's energy levels versus vitality. We went through and actually found all the definitions of how they were defining these things and even the items that they were using. And, you know, basically where we saw that they were overlapping, we were able to synthesise them. And so those 400 and something turned into these 21 that you see here. And what's visualised is how commonly a certain dimension came up from a review of quality of life or a review of uh, well-being or resilience or coping. So what you can see, so the, the relationships between the dimensions don't mean anything. It's just the relationship between the dimensions and the coloured nodes that you see. You see that there are some um, pretty common measures, uh, pretty common dimensions, particularly between, like shared between well-being and quality of life. Happiness, autonomy, optimism, sense of community, meaning and purpose. Uh, there were some that were very unique to quality of life, and I'm so glad that this was sort of validated by the discussions this morning with Tyler Vanderweel and uh, Tim Lomas, that things that we in positive psychology have probably overlooked, personal circumstances, physical health, um, activities and functioning, these are really unique to quality of life and didn't show up really when it came to um, sort of this idea of well-being. Obviously, well-being had some unique aspects as well that you can see, things like self-congruence, engagement, which was really about sort of flow. Um, and then resilience and coping as well really just brought these more coping styles to the, to the, to the, to the world, but also this idea of calmness as well. Could you, could you talk to the placement of your words on, on the chart? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So something like autonomy, which was right in the middle, that means it was basically, um, it, it occurred equally um, proportionally yeah, in the reviews of measures of well-being and quality of life and resilience and coping. And the word calmness? Calmness was very distant from quality of life. A bit more... So, like, the, roughly the breakdown, I don't have it on the top of my head, but it might be something like, you know, 50% of the time it showed up in resilience, 30% in well-being, and, you know, tw oh, it would be less than 20% probably for how far it is, but in my example, 20% away. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It, but of course, it does raise philosophical questions. Why would quality of life not include more of a recognition of the importance of self-congruence and confidence? Sure. And look, this is, very, this is very descriptive at this point. This is just merely, this is what we've found most commonly occurring in the literature. We're not making any statements that, you know, this is the model of mental health. We're not talking about that. Right. There are certainly things that are missing. 
I think there are things that potentially could be split into two or that could be merged. You know, we haven't made any of those sort of declarations just yet. This was just, mostly I think it's just out of interest in a sense that... Um, but this is a literature review. Yes. And, and, and in reality, even the definitions and people's agreement to what words mean is a question. Absolutely. No, I agree. Um, and I'll talk about some of the next studies that we're going forward through with, with this work and we're... And we're um, like, I agree with you, basically, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. Um, so next studies, this is where we want to go. So basically, in terms of um, those 155 measures, we've actually got all of the items, like the actual questions that we used. That's more than 3,500. Um, what we've been going through now is a process of resorting these items into those, those um, thematically analysed dimensions. And we want to sort out this item bank. I don't know if people are familiar with the term of item banks. This idea that you know, here are all the items that have been used to measure these things. Some will be terrible, and we've found lots of them. Questions about noticing the smell of fresh bread, um, which someone pointed out is a baker's well-being, apparently. But anyway. Um, and, and, and so we're going through this process of resorting these, these items into these dimensions. They call them buckets when you're talking about this kind of approach. And we're wanting to statistically start to understand when we measure it this way with more consistent, you know, um, with a bit more of a consistent framework around it, what, it, what are the psychometric properties? Do we see that these dimensions actually hold up psychometrically? And hopefully towards this idea of a taxonomy of well-being, this idea that can we stop using different language to mean the same thing or the vice versa, like the jingle jangle fallacy? Can we get on the same page as a field and um, start to progress, you know, together? So thank you very much. I've uh, started a podcast that I'll just tell you about, basically. It's called Researching Happy. Um, I'm recording on my phone. Hopefully this is working, which will be on there. But, um, yeah, interviewing different researchers from around the world, sort of mostly they've been outside of PodPsych, to be honest, because I think there's lots of uh, expertise around. And um, so, yeah, thank you very much for your time. Okay, so hi everyone. My name is Matthew Isiello. I'm from Adelaide, Australia. And what I'm going to talk about today is this program that we've spent a couple of years developing called the Be Well Plan. So what we'll do is walk through a bit of a rationale of what we were thinking about when we were trying to come up with this, this new program. We'll try a little bit of the content um, and then we'll run through the, des the design of the program and its evaluation and outcomes. So the idea with the Be Well Plan was to create a program that's effective regardless of the context that it's delivered in. So for a bit of, for a bit of context about the work that we do, we work um, across lots of different organisations across, across the country in Australia. Um, and there are lots of shifting you know, contexts that we, that we find ourselves working in. And so this idea that you know, this kind of more traditional approach that researchers take, which is like, you know, here's our program for firefighters and now we have to recreate it for first responders of some other type, you know, this idea that there's these huge differences between these boxes of people is not really actually the case and you find more variation within groups than between them. Um, and so that's sort of where we're coming in is how can we come up with something that, that works for people regardless? So how can we allow them to sort of um, tailor it to themselves? So the first thing we're really focused on is the idea that we've really overlooked well-being as a viable strategy for preventing you know, future mental health concerns. 
Um, we really need to look beyond targeting distress or well-being in isolation. And so obviously here we're trying to bring them together. Trying to bring in an understanding that our mental health is unique and that we need that personalization for individuals, regardless of what context we're in. And this idea that we want to see long-term impact, um, and to do that, we need behavior change habits. Um, and so this is really sort of the philosophy of the program. It's a five-week program. People come in, and we invite them to have a bit of an experimental mindset to, to, um, to learning. And so I'll, we'll go through it in a minute, but we've found a range of different activities that are evidence-based to improve well-being. We invite people to try, choose an activity. We have some sort of um, some ways of helping prompt which activity they might like to choose. Try it, it either works for you, then you add it to your strategy. If not, choose something else. And it's this process of learning, basically. If you like it, then you can try and turn it into a habit. So we'll quickly go through one activity just to get a, just to get a bit of an idea of what we're talking about. And this one's really popular. It's something called Meaningful Pictures. So a lot of the activities that we, that we run through in the program, they're, they're very much um, oriented towards something unhelpful that we commonly do. So Meaningful Pictures is here to sort of, sort of be a, a more useful strategy than something like the negativity bias, where we're often focusing on what's going wrong with our lives and we notice all the problems of our day. This is an alternative approach to actually start to bring that focus of the resources that you do have in your life and the sources of meaning and strength and the things that you have around you that actually make you feel well. So we know that meaning is a, uh, in life is a cornerstone of our well-being and, and pictures can be a really good way to reflect on the resources that we actually have. So, you know, think of your family, your study, your work, your hobbies, the places you live, the food you eat, the travel that you do. So I'm going to have a go first. So these are two photos um, that I've taken. One is from, um, that's a beach in a, in a, in a beach town in, in Australia called um, Robe, where I actually lost my wedding ring. And uh, it's gone. But, um, so I don't think this is like a positive story of finding it. But this is a photo of my, my father-in-law. It's freezing like in, in sort of winter, walking through, helping me to find it. And it's just like this nice thing where you go, it's actually really nice to have people that would help you do something as dumb as trying to find a ring in the middle of the ocean um, on, a freezing cold, on a freezing cold day. And the other is like an easy one in terms of source of meaning and, and, uh, in, in life, which is my two kids. And uh, I really love this photo because it's kind of a hug. It's kind of a tackle between a brother and sister. You know, you be the judge. But, um, you know, these guys just um, really are always there um, for me, basically, rather than me being there for them. So it's your turn now. Um, I'm going to invite you to pull out your phones. I'm guessing you've got them on you and you've got thousands of photos on there. The instruction is to choose just one photo and reflect on why, what it is in that picture that means something for you. So this isn't necessarily about the photo itself. It doesn't matter if we're talking about big lavish holidays or things like this. This is often just really little things, but most importantly to focus on what it is that actually means something to you. So have a go at that um, and try sharing it with the person next to you. Your what? Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Apple's kind of beat us to it by putting a, <laughs> automatically putting a, um, a lottery of your photos. So it's, it's kind of doing the job for us. So, 
What kinds of things were people showing? Other people? Other people? Yeah. Pets, maybe? Experiences? Anything other than that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking, I have no evidence to back this up, but if I had to choose a way, if I had like 30 seconds to meet someone, it would be through this activity. I think you learn so, like, the sort of like effectiveness per second is pretty strong. Um, but anyway, so getting back to the Be Well plan, so that's like one example activity. But really the question here is like, did you enjoy that? Some people may have completely hated it. I, mean, I still haven't come across that person, but you know, it might not resonate for some. Um, but more importantly, could you imagine making actually an intentional habit out of that idea? Um, and if so, how would you do it? So in the program, we have this idea of a habit statement, which comes from uh, the Tiny Habits work, where this idea of getting very, very um, explicit and clear about how it is you would actually make a habit out of this activity or you know, any of the activities that the participants choose. So it works in a really standardised format. So after I, dot, 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 which is um, the idea of an anchor. So a lot of this behaviour change work basically says, if you can tie this to something you already do, you're more likely to do it. So after I, come home from work, wake up in the morning, make a coffee, get in the car, whatever it is that works for you. I will practice, dot, 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 whatever this habit will be, meaningful pictures. And to celebrate, I will, dot, dot, dot. There's some, the idea is like you're creating this sort of this neural pathway of, uh, of celebration that sort of makes you more likely to do it in the future. I think this is actually probably the bit that doesn't work so much because practicing it almost is its own celebration because you feel good having, having done it. What we also talk about is having a reminder. How, like, so when you get to that anchor time, the after I dot, 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 how will you remind yourself? So people talk about, if it's like when I come home from work, I'll put a sticky note like right in front of my face as soon as I get home, that sort of thing. So it's the reminder when I'm at that anchor moment. You know, so for me, something that I do is when I sit down at my desk, I get my phone out, like at work, I get my phone out, I find one meaningful picture and to celebrate, I send it to the relevant person that's involved just to say, you know, remember this or, or, or whatever it might be. So that's really, that's really the, the essence of the Be Well plan, basically. This idea of tailoring these set and standardised activities um, to what works for you. Is that, sort of, is that making sense so far? Yeah, feel free, obviously, just to throw out any questions that you have along the way. So I'll talk now about the, the way that we've designed the program. Um, I would argue that I think it's one of the more, maybe the most um, rigorously designed wellbeing programs that are, that are out there. Um, and here are the main components that went into its design. So we worked with a multidisciplinary team of mental health and wellbeing experts who designed the program along with us and our team. We learned from training thousands of people. Um, so in, in my home state, we've been doing this since about 2015. Um, and so we had about five years of de delivering different wellbeing programs and a lot of the knowledge of what was resonating, particularly with Australians and the Australian audience, you know, what was working for them, um, really went into a lot of this work. The program's underpinned by a very, very large systematic review that our team ran, um, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And it's developed using a very rigorous um, protocol, which is called intervention mapping. So I don't know if people are familiar with that, but it comes mostly from public health. So intervention mapping is this idea of being basically very intentional with the design of, of an intervention. And it involves these six steps. Um, I won't go through the detail of all the steps, but the idea is really that it's about 
Firstly, being very clear with your definition of what the problem is. So actually doing a bit of a needs analysis to understand what is it specifically that we're trying to achieve here. You know, there's a tendency always to say like, we need an app, you know, or we need a website and that's gonna fix the problem. People haven't really focused on what is the problem actually. Um, you then go through these series of steps where you're, you're um, creating very clearly definable um, and measurable outcomes that will lead to the objective. So really coming up with a bit of a logic model of how do you expect your solution to achieve um, the solutions of that problem that you've defined. Um, you then apply these practical, uh, you then um, add and select evidence-based uh, methods or techniques that lead to these outcomes. So these are behavior change techniques that are gonna give you the best chance of actually realizing the outcomes that you're looking for. Then turning that into practical applications that will build engagement, disseminating this solution, and then evaluating the solution. And so this is something we've published. This is again something that we haven't really seen so far in PodPsych is the publication of the development of any interventions. Um, often it's an, it, it's an issue of, um, of word counts in, in, in journals, like if, you know, you mostly people are publishing RCTs and there isn't that much space to publish. What did you actually do in the program? Um, and it really doesn't make for a very fun paper either, I have to tell you. Um, you feel free and have a look. I think it's, it's definitely insightful, but it's just pages and pages of tables where we've outlined specifically what it is that we're doing and how we're going to do it. And again, this is really demystifying a lot of why does this work, which again is something we like to see happening in the field. So as part of that work, we have this logic model where we basically stepped out going from the far um, right what is the experience that well, what is the what is the solution that we're hoping to see in the world and stepping through all the sort of intermediate steps that we think we need to see um, and on the far left it starts with the individual determinants so what are these in individual determinants that we have to change and so for example we chose uh, knowledge skills beliefs about capabilities and consequences goals social influences and behavioral regulation and using the intervention mapping um, protocol, there's basically a, a, a set of um, behavior change techniques that are attached to each of those individual determinants. This is what the paper looks like. It just becomes a bunch of tables, 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 tables. Um, I think, I don't know, the appendix is like 60 pages long or something like that, just of this much detail. And the idea is that's why you do this process, basically, because you're extremely clear about what it is that you think you're doing. And it actually becomes a bit of a... Um, um, an auditing tool basically to say we said this is what we're doing as part of our evaluation are we actually seeing these things and are these things leading to the changes that we expected to see so then the next question is where do these activities come from so we practice meaningful pictures um, what we did as a team was a, a really large systematic review um, that was published in nature human behavior wondering what is the most effective psychological way to improve well-being and so at, if you've saw um, some of the some of the presentations yesterday, we're very unclear as a, as a research body about what do we actually mean by the term well-being. As a result, we needed to do, we need to read about 20,000 citations to, to identify 400 and, and about 50 um, final citations because everyone uses the term well-being. They say, here's a well-being intervention. You look through, it's got nothing to do with well-being. It's just what they add in the key terms and all the keywords and you go through and they've actually measured depression and anxiety. So that's another reason why we're so passionate about trying to get on the same page with what we actually mean by well-being. But basically what made this such a big systematic review is that um, 
we were really interested in any sort of psychological paradigm. We didn't care whether it was CBT or pos psych or ACT or mindfulness. We just wanted to know what was the most effective. Um, but also we were interested in what worked for the general population compared to those with a diagnosed mental illness compared to those with a physical illness. And so here's the sort of the table. I won't go into the details too much. Um, but basically you see a pattern of um, different, um, different levels of, of efficacy basically for these different types of interventions across these different populations. And so what we're hoping to do with this work is to lean into this idea of person to intervention fit or to becoming you know, more specific with the recommendations that we can give. So I'm part of a, a medical research institute and um, you know, the cancer researchers are all about precision medicine we can't do that yet in psychology, but we're hoping sort of to work into a, you know, toward that direction. And so it kind of looks like this in the program, um, in the actual Be Well plan. You know, it comes with sort of a slide deck and that sort of thing. And the idea is we're really trying to impress on the participants that not all interventions work for all outcomes. So what we couldn't publish in the systematic review, but what we've included in the program is these other outcomes that we looked at as well. So when we found all of these papers, we didn't only extract for well-being, we also extracted for positive and negative emotion, depression, anxiety, and stress. And the idea was that basically some, some um, interventions have a, um, an evidence base for improving well-being, but they may not necessarily reduce symptoms of depression or anxiety or, or vice versa. Um, and so what we did was basically from that systematic review, we found about 30 different effective activities which we standardized into these kinds of um, spreadsheets that you see here. So they follow a really consistent pattern. The idea is that it should be straightforward for people to sort of pick it up and understand whether they think they might like to try it. We use the analogy of a gym. So if you walk into a gym, there's lots of activities that you could do. You don't do them all. You do the ones that are matched to your interests and the outcomes that you're interested in getting from that gym. And so that's the idea. There's 30 different things here, but we'll walk you through and help you decide which ones might work best for you. And we're also, I think, very honest with the, the quality of the data that's out there. So, you know, we're talking about the law of averages here, really. These things are what we can recommend on average are effective, which means for some people they work really well and for others they don't work at all. So that's where that experimental lens comes in to say, try this habit because it might be effective, but maybe it doesn't fit in with your life. Uh, the final component of the program is this idea of um, prioritization and tracking. So we have this system which is called the Be Well Tracker, which is a, a, a platform where people can take an assessment of their mental health and well-being and, and take multiple measures and track, their, track it over time. Um, and we use this in the program both as an evaluation tool but also to help people prioritize in the earlier stages of the program which aspects of my mental health might I actually like to work on. So you may be here to improve your well-being, you may be here to reduce stress um, and everything in between. And so we use this again as a guide to help prioritize. So this is the way that the program works. There's five weeks, like I said. In week one, it's really about what do we mean by well-being. We talk about mindfulness to begin with because that was, um, if we go back, that was basically what we found the activity that worked across the board and had you know, the highest level of evidence, basically. Um, so we start there, and it really fits with the idea of the Be Well plan because there are lots of ways to practice mindfulness. You know, um, it allows you already to tailor it to yourself. You can practice it like as meditation. You can do it inside or outside. You can do it by yourself or with others. You can do it online or offline. Um, there's lots of sort of micro ways to do it. 
And so it really blends into sort of the philosophy of the program. And so they decide an activity to practice at the end of that week. We give them sort of like seven or eight different mindfulness activities and we try and set a habit statement to go away and try that thing. In week two, we start with a reflection. How did that actually go? Because we're wanting people to learn from their own experience of, you know, it's the classic thing that everyone says, you know what, I'm gonna do my, I'm gonna wake up at 6 a.m. every morning and do two hours of mindfulness and four hours on Sunday. And then lo and behold, they come to week two, ah, it didn't happen, right? Of course. And that's part of, that's part of the learning curve of the program is understanding um, how can you embed these things into your life with as minimal interruption, to be honest with you, because a lot of interruption is not going to lead to sustainable changes. You know, think of crash dieting and things like that. We also have self-compassion built very intentionally into week two, the idea that things get in the way and uh, we're here to learn. And it's also then again, it's one of those things that's contrasted with um, self-criticism as a more effective strategy. In week two, we take that mental health assessment and to help people prioritize, like if there was a mental health outcome that we'd like to focus on, whether it be resilience, well-being, anxiety, stress, or depression, which of those would you like to work on? Um, and, and will help you sort of find an activity that's given, gonna give you the best likelihood to, to address that thing. In week three, we talk, again, it always starts with a reflection, but in week three, it's about the resources and challenges in life. That's where Meaningful Pictures comes in. Um, really focusing on, you know, individuals may have challenges that they, they'd like to address or to mitigate, or they may have resources that they'd like to continue to um, promote and maintain in their life. And again, you know, humans, the negativity bias, we often do go to things, problems we want to fix, um, but the option's open, basically. And I, I hope you can see that this is, this is um, again, contrasting, I think, what a lot of the early post-psych stuff was doing, which was just focusing on the positive and almost imagining that the negative doesn't exist. In week four, we talk coping styles, and we actually make, again, this is kind of, again, the contrast is between avoidant coping versus four of the more practical, useful approaches to coping. Um, and we help prepare people for an um, upcoming stressor. So this is where, again, we get very um, practical, where we say, like, imagine something that's coming up that's going to be stressful in the next month, you know? Whatever it might be, it can be big or small. And the idea is, what are some of the practical things you could embed in your life or, or in preparation for that stressor that's gonna make you actually cope with it? And it can be actually facing the stressor head on, so like problem-focused coping. It might be imagine, um, uh, mitigating your emotional response to that stressor, you know, if the problem can't be, evolved, uh, can't be addressed, so like emotion-focused coping, and, and we go through all the way through to sort of help-seeking as well. And then finally in week five, it's really about tracking progress and, uh, and you know, an evaluation is what has changed. So people take the measurement again and they can track their own progress to see if the outcome that they were interested in has changed. Of course, considering what's happened in the last five weeks, because there could have been any number of tragedy or, or joy that's happened in those last four, five weeks. So it's about being very, very realistic. This is not a promise that you know, you're gonna go from two out of 10 to 10 out of 10 and you're gonna stay there. Um, it's, so it's about that idea of having realistic optimism of what we can achieve and what we have achieved in the last five weeks and sort of finalizing the, your sort of your be well plan, which is your, your combination of those strategies um, with this idea of best possible self. So how can I continue to use this past the life of the program and, and get to this idea of, you know, the best possible version of myself in the next six months or the next years? Any questions so far? Yeah? 
Yeah, yeah. So we're, um, I think the agreement is that there's no perfect measure or no perfect definition, but I think we go with, um, well, I don't think, we definitely go with the mental health continuum short form. So that's based on the Corey Key's work. And I think what we like about that is it's got a very nice balance of, you know, quote unquote, hedonic and eudaimonic well-being. But also it's kind of like Dina Riff and Keys all pulled together. And I think that really resonates with people. And it, and it again, sort of works in line with um, the philosophy of the program, which is like, again, you know, there's lots of aspects of your well-being. You might not actually care about all of them. You know, we talk about, a lot about social well-being. And I, I was delivering the program the other day and someone said, um, you know, I'm, I'm not that social of a person. Does that mean I don't have well-being? You know, and it's like, no. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really individually defined. And if, you, if some people being at a party like last night is their idea of well-being, that's not my idea of well-being, you know, of, of what it means to be social. So um, it's very, you know, it, it lends itself to that individual sort of um, tailorization. Sorry? I said, hey, we had fun. You had fun yesterday, yeah. <laughs> Me too, but I had to get out of there at some point. Um, and so here's a bit of an evaluation, and I can, I can sort of breeze through this pretty quickly. So basically, we've got to date an uncontrolled study of, of, um, of the program during COVID. So the, for us, this is really a pilot study. We actually trialed a pilot study. This was face-to-face -face in groups um, in February of 2020. And we thought, this is working so well. It's perfect. Group, you know, face-to-face, -face, it's going so well. And then obviously, turned around the corner there. So we quickly went to being online. But um, so this was right in the early days, basically, of, of the pandemic. And um, basically, we've seen in, the, in this study, again, using the Mental Health Continuum Short Form and DAS21 for distress, quite large, uh, sort of medium to large effect sizes across well-being, life satisfaction, depression, anxiety, and stress. So really pleased that you know, all that additional rigor that went into the program was, was, was resulting in a program that was more effective than the average well-being intervention. Um, I guess more, more relevant is the randomised control trial that we were able to complete in university students in South Australia. And this was with 215 participants, randomised again during that sort of COVID window of 2020 and 2021. Um, in this one, we used the Warwick Edinburgh um, Wellbeing Scale and we used CD Risk, PHQ-9 and GAD. Um, this is published in JMEA Mental Health. And we saw really similar, similar you know, consistent results. Um, what you see here is that the, the, the effect sizes on top of the bars are the um, within individual groups, whereas the one between the bars is, is the between, between group differences. And so, you know, like a, a Cohen's D of 0.66 is, is much larger of an effect than we see in um, most wellbeing interventions. So again, we're really pleased that I think we've got the balance of um, rigor in the design with um, with the intensity of the intervention as well. So this idea that, again, going back to the gym analogy, there have been promises made in this positive psychology world, not by that many or whatever, but there are promises made sometimes that like, come to my seminar, it's gonna change your life. You know, like a one hour thing is gonna change everything. Maybe they don't say that exactly, but it's kind of the implicit suggestion sometimes. And so we again go back to that idea of the gym. You can't, you can't go to the gym three times and then run a marathon. You know, and for some reason, we expect that to be the case, um, particularly in workforces. So again, really pleasing outcomes for well-being and resilience, um, but also for depression and anxiety, which I think is really interesting, particularly for this idea that, particularly in university students, there might not be clinical levels of depression and anxiety, but there are really high levels of distress. And, and probably they often are at clinical levels. 
But the idea that this could be something that's engaging to students, um, that they actually enjoy, um, and has such an impact on their depression and anxiety, which is sometimes higher or at least equivalent to some of the sort of mental, just like symptomology um, specific interventions that you see in the literature as well. Um, and you, we're really pleased to see that on average, I mean, this is uni students, 80% attended at least four of the five sessions, 84% did I say, and 96% um, rated their participation as, as very satisfied or satisfied. Um, and the final one is just this, um, a pilot that we've just finished up. I finished up some of the analysis on the way here was with um, survivors of breast cancer. And so this is another group that we're really trying to mend the gap um, in our mental health services because, you know, if you're, a, if you're a survivor of any cancer in Australia, which, you know, we have a pretty high level of healthcare, there's often this feeling of being dropped by the healthcare system. So once your treatment is over, you know, we've done our job is kind of the message that you receive but you're left with a life that has been radically changed. Um, often lots of distress, financial issues, relational issues, um, life responsibilities, and without very accessible clinicians, basically, because the psychologists in Australia and around the world are all pretty, pretty booked up. And so we think that this could be something that's really, um, has a place to mend that gap Again, nothing of what I'm talking about is about replacing clinical services. This is about being complementary. Um, so this is a pilot that we've just run in, uh, 20, uh, 19, um, in 19 survivors. The average age was 63, as you see. 40% had been diagnosed within the last three to six months. 90% were still on treatment. And 40% had had no mental health support since their diagnosis. And so this was very exploratory for us because we didn't understand when would people like to come and do this program do you want to do it post-treatment? Like a lot of people, well, we heard every opinion. We did a lot of consumer engagement. We heard every opinion. Sometimes it was, I could never have done that during my treatment period because it's such a busy time. Um, whereas others said, that's exactly when I'd like it. So we kind of actually just left the door open to see who would come through. And we're really surprised to see that it was almost immediate. You know, three to six months of your, of your diagnosis is a pretty quick sort of turnaround. Um, and, and most pleasing of all, basically, was the really large effects that we saw in this group. So I think there's a bit of a trend that um, for those with lower levels of you know, baseline well-being, you're more likely to see growth, and I think that's really what we're seeing here. But again, this is you know, far exceeding the sort of the average impact of a, of a well-being intervention, and importantly, across well-being, depression, anxiety. As a question? Yeah, what's the last one on the, the bottom bar? I see Cure, Q, a, a quality of life. Yeah, and that was, um, yeah, sorry, that's okay. It was a um, very somatic um, measure of quality of life, as most of them are. So it was very much about, um, <clears throat> like, gastrointestinal issues or um, feeling tired, feeling, you know, um, sort of the ramifications of treatment, say. And so that wasn't necessarily something that we thought we would see a difference in, but um, it's kind of the done thing to include it. So yeah, again, uh, and of interest actually, resilience was the one that didn't shift that we were expecting to see a change in. Um, and I think there, part of that reason was, um, we think there are two and it's just a pilot, so we're hoping to expand this and find out, but some came to the program with extremely high levels of wellbeing, so basically something that you couldn't shift, whereas others had setbacks along those last five weeks of the program. So others had negative biopsy results or um, went back into treatment, these sorts of things. So that's a time when obviously you're feeling of resilience. So you're, you're feeling like you can um, 
maintain the challenges and the stresses of life obviously naturally goes down. So that's it from me. Thank you very much. What do I hope will happen? That you all go away with, you mean? Or? Yeah. Like, are you hoping he'll take it and go do stuff with it? Um, not necessarily. I mean, that would be interesting. I think what we're hoping for, so we're, we're, this, we're sort of a unique setup that we're a, actually a for, I work for basically a for-profit business within a charity. And so we've been, we're not able really to win preventative mental health research grants in Australia because they almost don't exist. And so to be able to fund the work that we do, we actually sell the Be Well plan um, to different workplaces. And so every now and then we can do the work that we really want to do, you know, which is, um, I mean, we want to do the stuff in workplaces too, I guess, but things like the sort of more social good enterprises like survivors of breast cancer, which there's really not much funding for that sort of stuff. Um, and so we have sort of um, ways that that businesses and organisations can adopt the Be Well plan and, and sell this on, basically. Um, but that's not necessarily the, what I'm here for today. Um, I just, I think we're really committed to trying to be as rigorous with our design and, and, the, and the research that we do. And um, really pleased, I think, to be here at the conference where we're seeing that that's the trend of the rest of the field now too. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, they were all um, in workforces. So not that that really means that much, but basically the average, the average we continue to see because we do measure, we often like generate reports for the organization and it's, we just see the one in five basically. So this is not a clinical diagnosis. We, we, don't, we don't measure that, but in terms of um, the level of distress, we do see this sort of one in five, um, which holds up to basically the Australian, Australian statistics. So sometimes it's more like two in five. Um, for the, for the, like the RCT and the pilot, we ask those questions because they're sort of more like research questions, uh, sorry, more like research studies in the way that we operationalize them. Whereas, <coughs> excuse me, for the, um, uncontrolled pilot, that was really just using the data that we collect, um, in our, in our workforce work basically. So when we're working in a workplace, they don't really want their staff to have to do really long surveys, basically, which you can sort of afford a bit more in, in proper research studies. No worries, thanks. Yep. I really appreciate your work in, in terms of not just showing the prevention, <coughs> but showing the reasoning behind it in that you insight. Yeah, thank you. So have, have you thought about whether, as a field, we should perhaps require that, and maybe one of the solutions is, is requiring it to be posted in something like yeah. Absolutely. I think that um, a lot of fields do have standards of reporting. Um, we definitely don't have that. You've heard lots of criticism, I think, of the field while you've been here, um, and maybe you came here with your own. But I absolutely agree. I think the truth is that most wouldn't even have, have that, um, to be honest with you. And... Um, I don't know whether it's the fact that we've taken the more of a public health approach that is a little bit more um, rigorous in its reporting, that we've, that we've sort of had that as a luxury basically to rely on, um, but it's definitely not something that we're that familiar with. And so it was one of the challenges that we had when we did the systematic review was dividing up 
well, what is, an, what is a CBT intervention? What is a mindfulness intervention? Because where does mindfulness-based CBT fit, right? And so you go to the methods and you look at what did they actually do? And there's less detail than I've presented in this slide. You know, it's like literally just here were the things that we said. There's no understanding of which were more emphasized or less emphasized. Um, and that was really across basically all of these things that um, often the skills were, were un, we were unable to sort of understand what they were. And they went into a bucket, which is called multi-theoretical interventions here, which is just basically we couldn't tell. Either you, you explicitly told us that you mixed two or we just couldn't tell. And um, I would love to see that as an idea, absolutely. On your final slide, if you reference your podcast, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you. Um, So yeah, I started a podcast about researching happiness. Um, I've invited, I've got about 15 episodes out there so far. I do one a week. Um, There's an episode with my my colleague, Yup Van Agteren, where we talk about the Be Well plan. Um, who, who couldn't be here because he's gone home to see family in the Netherlands, which is amazing. Um, so there's a bit of a deep dive into, into that sort of thing and, and um, probably make some funny comments about the field of post-psych if you're into that. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just hoping to sort of give a bit of more of an experience of um, what, are the, what are the stories that happen behind the studies, basically, when it comes to this field. And, and I, I've actually been pretty intentional about being multidisciplinary. So we've had um, philosophers, we've had... Economists, theologians, um, sort of public health epidemiologists, and a couple of people from PostSyc as well. Yeah, thank you. Okay. The undermining effect of intrinsic motivation. Yeah. You're definitely the you're definitely the um, philosopher. Um, look, I think we're we're not at that level really of going down there. I think we're really explicit that there are everything has a you know a, a dark side basically. If you overdo it, um, we really nail that. I think with um, self compassion, this idea that particularly if you go into like male dominated industries, they don't like hearing about self compassion. I think at the start because of what they think we're about to say. And they like self-criticism, basically. Like, I think that's the, that's the experience that we've heard. But this idea that we're not, by saying self-compassion, we're not saying um, never hold yourself to a high standard. That's what they hear. They hear high standards are performance and criticism. So compassion undermines that. And so I think we're really clear that, you know, everything has its use until it becomes unhelpful. And I think that's where we're sort of saying again that that would probably fall into that bucket, but it's not something necessarily that we've that we've discussed too much. Yeah. yeah the thing is, like, with, with the design of an app like that, I always think there's like a sweet spot of like how much gamification is like enough. Yeah. 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 And how much is too much? Sure. And, and actually, I was wondering, like, do people really need? Like, sorry. To, to, to form an to yes, I know what you mean. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So that that is so. Just to be clear as well, the program there is an app that goes with the program, but um, we very intentionally not made it an app only intervention. So it is this group based intervention. If you want to use the app to sort of use it as your scheduling tool and set reminders for yourself, you can. 
but the main driver is is um, is this group-based format. So it's it can be done via Zoom, and, and we've been doing that really well so far. But also face-to-face -to -face too. And so um, in that regard, yeah, I, I do agree. If you're setting the motivation to get some gamified reward on an app, then there I think there is um, going to be an issue there. Yeah. Thank you. They're two hours per per session um, for five weeks, and so. People can feel free to, to leave, by the way, if they've got the next thing to go to. But um, we're just about to um, we're just about to trial this flipped classroom model. So, like I said, we work in a lot of workplaces, and it's getting harder and harder to you know to find two hours in most workplaces, or or some places have like you know split shifts, or they have you know they have to replace to replace um, an entire day to take someone offline if you're like a, a police officer or something like that. Um, so we're trying this flipped classroom where we've actually pre-recorded a lot of the content, which is sort of the explicit teaching moments, that people could watch them in, in sections throughout their week, however it would work for them, but it's almost like three or four minute clips that you, would, that you could watch before the week, and then come together in some other format, whatever it might be, face-to-face um, -face or otherwise, where you could do the more self-reflection and sharing um, activities. So really trying to streamline that, streamline it. We, it, I think it would be more cost effective. We don't know whether it will have a difference on the effectiveness itself, um, but we're hoping that it, it leans again into the, the sort of the philosophy of the program that this is autonomous, um, and this would make it actually a bit autonomous for the um, for the organisation that's delivering it. So if they say, you know what, we're going to do this as a team over Friday lunches, or we're going to do it in work time or whatever, it's just a bit more flexible. So we'll wait and see what happens. Yeah, we, we have a bit of a train-the-trainer format, basically, because I'm a part of a team of only like seven or eight people. Um, and so what we do is we, we um, upskill trainers within organisations often. So if we work in a big organisation of a couple of thousand people, say, they might have two or three trained trainers who can speak the language you know, like we, we work in the prison system, like prison guards don't really want to hear from me. I sit at a desk and use a keyboard and stuff. They don't want to hear about that when they're in their workplace have the threat of physical violence every day. So for me to come and talk about gratitude, um, it, it, it's not that authentic basically. Whereas to hear it delivered by someone that they trust, that speaks their language, that understands, you know, and, and almost probably already has a trusted relationship with many, um, is, is also I think a bit of the secret of um, the sort of the implementation success as well. No worries. Thank you, everyone. Peace.